When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and welcome to Recall This Book, the Children's Hour edition with world-famous book historian Leah Price. Hello, Leah. I'm one of your hosts, John Plotz, and I am virtually flanked today by the other um, intrepid anthropologist and uh, children's book writer herself, Elizabeth Ferry. Hey, Elizabeth. Oh. <laughs> Hi. So um, what was your favorite book as a child? What was your favorite book to read to your own children? And looking back at those books, do you think about the story or the pictures or what? Maybe, especially if you answered Pat the Bunny or what do people do all day, you actually think about the actual object that you held in your hands. So exploring that nexus of story and substance, the text and the art object, there's, I think, no better guide, no better Virgil than my wonderful, beloved friend, Leah Price. Leah uh, was for many years an English professor at Harvard. She's a founder and director of the Rutgers Initiative for the Book and an English professor there. She tweets actively at what price? That's at what price? And Leah right, at what price? Yeah, Leah at what price? Oh, sorry, right, Leah at what price? Thanks, Leah. And uh, her most recent book is What We Talk About When We Talk About Books. So the way we imagine beginning this conversation is for each of us to begin by starting about one, talking about one of our favorite children's books and then tossing questions at one another about how those books compare with one another in an effort to kind of get at the uh, magical platonic mystery of the children's book. And so that's what we're gonna do. And then as always, we will end with recallable books. And so can I just throw the floor open to you, Leah, and ask you what book you wanted to start talking about? So I wondered whether we could start talking about a book that is both one of my favorites and one of my child's favorites. It's a slim volume uh, by an American author, Patrick McDonnell, called A Perfectly Messed Up Story. And although the audio format doesn't really 
um, give much scope for showing you the cover of this book. If I were to describe it, I would say that the typography of the book emphasizes the fact that the first two letters of MEST coincide with the only two letters of the first person pronoun, mm. me. So that this is a story about a book that gets progressively messed up by having jam smeared on it, peanut butter smushed into it, orange juice spilled on it, it gets scribbled on and so forth. And over the course of the book, we come to realize that the book's resilience in the face of all this hard usage stands for the resilience of the child reading it. That is the me who comes to learn that living and being subject to all the wear and tear that comes with spending a longer and longer amount of time alive does not make you less worthy of being loved. Mm -hmm. It makes you more lovable. Mm -hmm. I'm making this book sound pious and moralistic, <laughs> but in fact, part of the pleasure of reading this book is the pleasure of at first looking at what appears to be a peanut butter stain, preparing to get angry at your child for not having washed his hands before reading it. Yeah. And then the joke is on you because uh -huh. it's not a real peanut butter stain. It is a yeah. two-dimensional <laughs> representation of a three-dimensional schmear. Yeah. So. So Leah, as a book historian, isn't that like the category of association copy on some on some level? Like, in other words, those books that are valued not because of the um, objective fact of the words on the page, but the subjective fact of like the traces of original owners that attach to them? Is that? Yes and no, because what is called an association copy is indeed usually a copy that is more valuable because of something that a famous person has written in its pages, whether that's just a previous owner's autograph mm -hmm. on the front paste down, or whether it's abundant annotations Marginal, in the margins yeah. of the book. But mm -hmm. here, of course, we're not dealing with words. We're not even dealing with underlinings or doodlings. We're dealing with marks made by food yeah. rather than marks made by pens or pencils. And so in a way, we're also dealing with it's a, a violation it's a of the a disassociation. big library Yeah, it's a mm -hmm. disassociation copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah well, that's it's a joke about the life of the book as a material object too, right? Yeah. Because it's it's. You, you believe that it's because of its being bouncing around in the world, but actually those marks are straight from the publisher. Exactly. So in that way, maybe following up on John's point about an association copy, maybe this is a pseudo association copy. It's the equivalent of yeah. the book whose spine a student cracks before bringing it to class to make it look as if the book has been <laughs> mm -hmm. read. I've, I've heard and I also think that there's kind of two ways that people 
materially interact with books. There's the people who, or two kinds of people maybe. Mm. There's people who insist on the book being well cared for and that your, your evidence of, of loving a book is that it isn't messed up, right? And then there are the people whose evidence of loving a book is that it is messed up. So it's, it's not even- And those people are called of, children. And those, right, exactly. I got in big trouble once for having a, a glass of water on a book. Yeah. You know, and um, told that I was told that I was not sufficiently caring about the value, not the monetary value of the book, but the but the book book value of it. I believe the book was um, how much is that in dollars by Art Bookwald. So if I can steer us to safer. Um, more Please. safely impersonal topics. Uh, I'm with John in the sense that jokey, metafictional, self-referential books like A Perfectly Messed Up Story tend to be marketed, as far as I can tell, to an upper middle class mm -hmm. readership. Whereas if you go down market from books like A Perfectly Messed Up Story or like a wonderful Mo Willems book called We Are In, we a, are book, in a Book. I was exactly, going to mention that. Yeah. In which an elephant and a pig realize that their days are numbered because they will exist as literary characters only until the final page. And they keep oh, wow. nervously flipping ahead to check how many pages are left before realizing that every page that they spend flipping ahead is one fewer page that they will have to live and so yeah. forth. These, <laughs> these artsy, pomo, metafictional books are quite different from a genre of book that you can find often self-published in droves called things like Manners with a Library Book or mm. How to Take Care of Your Books in which the child is told very straight without any of this wink, wink, nudge, nudge, self-referentiality not to touch a book without washing hands, mm -hmm. not to eat while reading, not to crush a book by putting heavy things on top of it. And I suppose you, Elizabeth, would be your younger self, might be one target audience of this kind of book. Don't right. put a glass of water yeah. on top of it. it it's so right. funny, Leah, because I think of you as you are, you opened to me the world of bibliotherapy in which books are used as a form of therapy. But what you just described is the other kind of bibliotherapy, which is like instructions on how to give your books therapy. Like in other words, like yeah. it's the curative, like like training you to be the suitable compliant subject of your book rather than the book to be the, you know, rather than the book helping you, you're supposed to help the book. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, you are supposed to take care of the book, but you are not supposed to take care of the book by mending it. These books don't tell you how to repair a rip with scotch tape. I think mm -hmm. they're more about distance, boundaries. Don't get too intimate with your books. Yeah. Don't get too comfortable. Hey, so speaking of which, mm -hmm. Leah, before we pivot away from your amazing book, can I ask you what um, 
your son's response is to it? Like, does he then add more peanut butter to its peanut butter and more coffee stains to its coffee stains or? I wish he were that enterprising, but he seems to prefer having his biblioclasm done for him. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, what lesson do you draw from that? Maybe like that one of the pleasures of reading is passivity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting actually about little kids too. Like there's the kind of reading where there's this sort of pleasure of having the parent read the same thing over and over again. And there's a kind of passive dimension to that, right? And then there's also the pleasure of I mean, the, the sort of material example I'm also thinking of is the very hungry caterpillar, right? There's the pleasure of like yeah. sticking your finger through the holes and, and you know, feeling the edges and all of those things. Pat the bunny um, also, yeah. Pat the bunny, yeah. Um, but, which does not stand the test of time, I think. But. You don't? No, don't, no. Well, since the central characters are named after my parents, so I've always found them incredibly <laughs> endearing. Okay. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean anything personal by it. <laughs> <laughs> Endearing and creepy at the same time. But mm -hmm. um, but but actually, I was thinking about a different kind of book in, in terms of that, the sanctity of the or the passivity of reading, which is, do you guys know the book Ten Minutes Till Bedtime? Mm -hmm. Which is, it's just a slow countdown of all of these little creatures getting ready to go to bed. Elizabeth, it doesn't ring a, a bell. But no. so when my mother read it to her various grandkids, you know, so my kids and nieces and nephews, we always called it 10 hours till bedtime because she would, each page, she would launch into a long narrative disquisition about what every character was doing on that page. And so uh -huh. it became, so it was, I, I, I don't know if that's passive or active. I mean, like the listening experience for our kids was two different things at once. Like there was the formal ritual of, oh yeah, now they're taking a bath. Now they're putting on their PJs. But then there was also the endless variation of like, oh, well, which of those little characters is she going to follow down the bathtub spout tonight? You right. Know? I, my kids always preferred to be read a book than to be told a story, I think. H how about you guys? That's interesting. Um, I mean, maybe that just speaks always. to- Almost always, yeah. Yeah, um, almost always, almost always, yeah. Yeah. There, there were a couple of moments where I got the story right, and I mean the story genre right, and they, and that went well. But yeah, not always. When my child wanted to be told a story, initially he would say, "Read it." Maybe I'll use that as occasion to talk about my book really quick. I went looking for it on the shelves today, and I actually I found Madeline. I found um, uh, I found. Wanda Gag, I found Curious George, but the book I was looking for is Maurice Sendak, Where the Wild Things Are. Mm. And the thing I was going to say about that is that it's a book about, in a way it is about delightful passivity because it's about, if you guys remember, it's that he he uh, roars his terrible roar. He gets sent off to the land where the wild things are because he won't mm. behave. He Max, Max makes a terrible rumpus and gets sent off to where the wild things are. And... Um, it's about the possibility of the journey to the land of the wild things. And then when you get sleepy and homesick and you can go back, your dinner mm -hmm. is waiting for you and it was still warm at the mm -hmm. end. So in other words, it begins 
it begins and ends in the same place, which is basically the bedroom or the nursery or something. And then the adventure happens in between. So, so mm. Leah, I really love that you picked a book in which the materiality comes through on the Trump Loy effect. And then the, I feel like the op one opposite of that along one axis and antithesis of that would be the way that where the wild things are offers you a space that is just completely envisioned as dream and suspension so that when you come back, you resume your regular life right where you were at the moment that you started this fantastic adventure to wild right. thing land. Right. So the parenthesis gets closed, although even there, you probably remember that the opening scene in which uh, Max is uh, earning the epithet of wild thing, yeah. uh, one of the reasons for his being sent to bed without supper involves his standing on top of a stack of books. You know, I'm teaching this fantasy class this year and I feel like the perennial, Cla the, the question my students want to return to over and over again is like, well, let's say you leave this world and head off into this other world. What exactly is it you're heading off into? Like, what do you have? Like, right. can it be, you know, can it be genuinely other or does it just end up being some kind of refracted version of your own world? Like you needed to go into that al alternative space, but the only thing you can do while you're there is like, look back at right. your own world. Right. Like the book you mentioned, Leah, we are in a book, which I totally love. What I, one thing I remember about it is that like, like the, the, what they, what elephant and piggy realize when they realize they're in a book is that they have all this power over the reader. So in other words, it turns back into a game of them looking at the reader and making the reader say things. Mm -hmm. So right, I can make the, I can make the reader say a word. Yeah. I can make the readers. Oh no, you can make the reader say a word. I can make the reader say a word. Yeah. <laughs> say a word. That's banana. Yeah. Banana. Banana. Oh, right. So funny. Yeah. Oh, the reader said it again. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that takes us back to the question of the power of being read aloud too. Usually, say in a political context, we think of the person who is speaking as powerful, the demagogue talking through mm -hmm. the megaphone and the powerless people standing there listening, but that power dynamic may be reversed when the readee is demanding the labor of the reader. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Hey, Elizabeth, tell us about your book. Well, so I had started with a different book, um, but now that we got into the conversation, um, I wanted to introduce The Disappearing Alphabet by Richard Wilbur, because mm. it's sort of a different take on the materiality of the book or the materiality of words or the relationship between the letters of words and the meaning, I guess. Mm -hmm. So it's an alphabet book and it go it, so it has 26 chapters. And I'll just read the first chapter. Um, it, the premise is that the that that out, that letters might disappear, and then the world would be changed. So, what if there were no letter A? Cows would eat high instead of hay. What's high? It's an unheard of diet, and cows are happy not to try it. Mm. 
<laughs> That's very so good. So how does that fit into our question of, of books as objects? And Yeah. If we're thinking about adults reading books marketed or addressed to children, it seems striking that for most of the 20th century, the concern was about children or teenagers reading books that were only suitable for adults. Mm -hmm. And this was not specific to the book industry. It was mm -hmm. also a big question in the movie industry. Yeah. That's how we have movie ratings. Yeah. But sometime around the turn of the millennium, the concern seemed to shift to moral panic about adults regressing by reading yeah. books marketed to right. children. So is the right. worry about speeding up sexual maturity or is the worry about turning back the clock on what we now call adulting yeah. through the mm -hmm. mainstreaming of young adult literature? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. I don't know. I didn't know that was a moral panic. I mean, I definitely know there's, you know, moral panic around what people are reading or whether they're reading or so on. But I didn't know there was one about you're not supposed to read young adult books if you're an adult because then you're too immature or you're not reading at a high enough level or something like that. It seems to have taken the baton over from the fear of chiclet. Uh huh. <laughs> right. Don't read like a woman. Don't read like a child. Right, mm. right, right. Yeah. Um, which is a descendant of the disdain towards novels as a whole, right, from the 19th century. Well, so here's an interesting demographic thing from my fantasy class, which is only 32 students. So it's a small sample size, but that they are not at all worried. On, you know, predictably, since they're in a fantasy class, they're not worried about having juvenile tastes but they react <laughs> incredibly strongly against narnia and i think that the reaction against narnia is a reaction against a, an adult idea being packaged deceptively inside a childhood frame mm. you know in other words what they are resenting there is the allegorical Christian message, which is, you know, it's not particularly subtle and I'm not sure it's meant no. to be subtle, but they take it as almost, it's almost like a viral um, contagion. Like they resent the fact that it contains an adult conception of Christianity, like packaged in an animal mm -hmm. fable. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how that fits into your paradigm, Leah, because it's like, they're not worried about its juvenile quality. What they're worried about is its deceptively adult core. <laughs> you know? Do they feel insulted by manipulated? The, uh, manipulated. So mm -hmm. we're back to the question of power and agency. You, Leah, you teach about quixotism, which is maybe another version of what we're talking about here, right? I mean, which is the that is. Quixotism understood as the capacity to cast yourself into imaginary worlds as if they were real, you know, yeah. which, which is a Jew, which is a child reader is just what you do. I mean, that's what, where the wild things are is about, but then yeah. Quixot, I mean, if you think about Don Quixote or you think about like the female Quixote, which I think you recommended to me, Leah, it's about being an adult who nonetheless imagines those worlds have right. reality. Right. Well, that's why Quixote is a ludicrous figure, right? 
And yet oh so lovable. And yet oh so poignant, yes. Poignant, yeah. Okay, Leah, you cast the deciding vote. Is Quixote, is he poignant or is he lovable? <laughs> you know, I think that gets back to Elizabeth's point earlier about novel reading having originally been the suspect activity is, mm -hmm. is identifying with a literary character a sign of virtuous imagination right. or is it a sign of craziness, laziness, pick your vice. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I wish we could answer that one. <laughs> um, that sounds like a really good time to pivot to recallable books. Um, and dear listeners, you will remember, this is the moment where we say to you, if you enjoy the conversation today and you want you know, to sort of continue on at, at the same vector, um, here are some books you might want to look at. So, Leah, do you want to start us off? An oldie but goodie, uh, The Child That Books Built by Francis Spufford. This is a book that John and I have swooned over together in many different conversations. <laughs> it's a, okay, here I will say poignant rather than ludicrous account of the author's childhood through an account of his childhood reading and it's lent added poignancy by the fact that for me it's made more poignant by the fact that before I had ever heard of Francis Spufford I had read and seen in many uh, bibliographies of academic monographs um, research by a historian named Margaret Spufford, uh, one of the hmm. pioneering experts on early modern popular literacy, and only a couple of hundred pages into <gasps> Spufford's autobiographical essay did the penny drop and did I realize that the mother who flitted in and out of oh. the pages <laughs> of his book was Margaret Spufford. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's an extraordinarily unsentimental and yet I think deeply touching analysis of a family mm. through the medium of recalling books mm -hmm. as it were. Mm -hmm. Recall this yeah. book. Mm. Nice one. So that would be mine. Cool. Hey, Elizabeth, do you have one? Yeah, uh, so it's going, picking up on part of our conversation um, about the relationship between the, the sort of ordinary life around um, children and fantasy. Uh, and it's the book by E. Nesbitt called The Railway Children, oh, which God. is actually one of her, <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to explain that in a second, um, which is actually one of her not so, not so fantasy-based books, uh, unlike Phoenix in the Carpet and Five Children and It, but is about a story of a family who is um, kind of temporarily kicked out of the middle class because their their father is, it's kind of based on the Dreyfus affair, right, is accused of um, espionage. And 
uh, but they sort of weave this elaborate story. And then at the end of the book, the story kind of becomes, um, aligns itself with what's happening in their real life, and which I find very satisfying and lovable and poignant. I'm going um, like full naive. I'm going to recommend Millions of Cats by Wanda Gag, just yeah. because I think those, Wanda Gag was, had a very short career as a children's book writer. She only wrote, she wrote this, she wrote something called The Funny Thing. She wrote a few other books, but Millions of Cats seems to me to be a perfect children's book. And it was one that I was, it was read aloud to me. Now that I look back at it, it has this creepy Malthusian message because it's about how all of these millions of cats are gonna overpopulate the earth, but fortunately they kill each other off, leaving just one yeah. beautiful and little- eat each frightened... other, don't they? What? Don't they yeah, but it's, it's not really described how they eat each other, but they do. It's, it's a little bit yeah. like the road or something. It's the, it's the road for cats. Um, <laughs> road and then for just... the four to five year old but, set. <laughs> yeah, well, it's an offstage version of the road yeah. but, um, or Oryx and Crake maybe. But, um, but the result of it is a single uh, little frightened kitten that you can bring home to be plump and uh, you know sit yeah. in your own backyard. And um, as a kid with one small frightened cat, I... Um, I loved this book so much. Mm. And looking back at it, it still just has this totally naive power over me, which I I do, I mean, I, I do worry about like critically, I won't say reappropriating children's books, but I worry that like returning to them as an adult, even just talking about them is sometimes to ruin that feeling. Mm. So I kind of want the ability to talk about them. And yet I want the feeling to sit off in its own place. And for me, Wanda Gag is one of those writers who can do that. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, well, Leah, thank you so much. You've given us so much to, to, uh, to think about. Um, um, and um, as often happens, you've revealed the fault lines in, in, in uh, Elizabeth's view of the world and my view of the world. And I, <laughs> I appreciate that um, revelation. Yep. <laughs> and so we should thank you. And we should say that Recall This Book is hosted by uh, Elizabeth Ferry and John Plotz with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, sound editing uh, by Claire Ogden and website design and social media are done by our new Mellon Connected PhD, um, Nye Kim. Uh, we always want to hear from you with your comment, criticisms, or suggestion for future episodes. And you can email us directly or contact us, contact us via social media and our website. And finally, if you enjoyed today's show, uh, I always say it, but I always mean it, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, or just pass the episode on to friends. Uh, you may be interested in checking out past episodes, which include... Uh, recent conversations with Lawrence Ralph and Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, and a series of episodes on global policing, and another short series called uh, Recall This Buck. So from all of us here at Recall This Book, thanks for listening.